0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. So right in the middle of your Bible, looking at uh, what is an interesting psalm, very different than some of the others. Now, as we are um, beginning into a conversation that will make more sense why I'm starting this way, um, modern people tend to think that we discovered psychology in the era of Sigmund Freud, uh, of all things, and uh, so it it was a German thing, but as you begin to think about it, that's only because people don't really understand the Bible and maybe haven't read the Bible because as you read through the Bible, you realize there is a a deep understanding of inner human psychology and the human experience. The Bible is constantly talking about the things that are going on inside of us, and particularly as you read through the Psalms, you realize uh, the Psalms give language and give voice to a lot of the things that are going on inside of us. Uh, 150 Psalms that are in uh, the Bible. There's praise, confession, contrition, sadness, grief, elation, joy, expectation, trust, anger, confidence. And so the whole range of human emotions are expressed and lifted up uh, to God in worship and with a great emphasis on his mercy, his covenant love, his redemptive power. And uh, so long before Sigmund Freud, long before Dr. Phil, uh, the Bible was helping us to deal with and give expression to the things that were going on inside of us, and, and even this morning's passage is, is talking about something that's really important. Uh, for reasons that will become clear as we read through Psalm 88, uh, this psalm has been called uh, by some the dark psalm, uh, because uh, most people say there's not a shred of hope in it, and so we're going to read that this morning. You're all thinking, oh boy, this sounds like a great morning of worship, so if you're willing uh, and able, let me invite you to stand as we read Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to the Mahaloth Lanoth, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. have become darkness. This the reading of God's holy word. He's given it to us because he loves us and because he wants us to understand that love and to understand ourselves. So let me pray and ask him to bless us this morning. Uh, for some of us in this room, Father, this psalm seems very foreign. Um, it talks about things that we don't want to address. And for some of us in here, this psalm seems all too familiar. It has given voice to the things that we feel, but don't feel like we can utter and say out loud. And so we pray this morning as we come to this passage that you, O Lord, you who understand the brokenness and fallenness of the human heart, human lives, our minds, our souls, that you administer to us the same grace uh, that we have come to expect from you. You're a God of grace and love and wonder and mercy. And so we pray that you would be pleased this morning to minister to this group of people in this room. Would you bless us and be with us? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, When I told someone last week that I was preaching on Psalm 88, they immediately said, oh, you're going to teach on depression. And uh, it shows that they've read Psalm 88 before. Uh, It's not a pick-me-up psalm by any stretch. Uh, We moved into a house that was... uh, What's, what's it called? Um, turnkey, thank you. Somebody remember I use that term all the time to describe our house. So all the like artwork and stuff is already up. And we had Bible verses up. And not a single Bible verse was up when we bought our house. That was from Psalm 88. Uh, they were from other places. Uh, but for some of us, it's probably, even though you know, we don't want to talk about it, it's probably one of the most important Psalms. Simply because it is in the Bible. It is raw in its honesty and portrayal of the dark places that we can go. Uh, in our minds, in our hearts, in the midst of a fallen world. Um, and I need to say this kind of a caveat up front: is th- this is not a sermon about depression, uh, but it really is a, psalmon, a sermon about Psalm 88, and uh, which is applicable to that, but we're gonna take it in a different place. We're not gonna spend our whole time talking about depression. Um, three things for your outline. One is why is this important for us as people living in the world? That's the first point. The second is, what is this psalm really getting at? What's it about? And then the third is, how can we bring it into our lives? So the first is, why is this important? Uh, why, is, why is this passage in the Bible, why is it important for us? I told you about one student um, years ago, struggling with depression. There was another, her, and uh, I'm going to, what's her now? I'll call her Stephanie. That was not her name. But Stephanie struggled with depression. She would call me at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, she was... Uh, in a really bad and difficult place. And she wanted me to kind of talk her down from the proverbial ledge. She was not in a good place. And so she wouldn't call me every night, but she had about seven or eight people that she would call at two in the morning and kind of make her way through because she was just that deep into despair. And eventually she worked through it. But um, part of my experience with dealing with this is uh, there are a lot of people who have underlying depression I have a measure of depression that I struggle with. People I love and know have some measure of depression. Uh, so what, what are the symptoms of this? Well, it's, it comes with, it, there's fatigue with it. There's feeling empty, feeling disconnected. Uh, one definition online was simply this. It's a constant feeling of sadness and a loss of interest. And that's pretty technical. And it's kind of, you know, doesn't really flesh it out. In his book uh, called Depression, a Stubborn Darkness by Christian counselor Ed Welch, he spends the first two chapters of the book talking about what depression feels like. And some of you already know, but what was interesting reading those, ver- the, w- those people talk about their struggle with depression, one word came up a lot, and it was the word hell. They said it feels like hell. And now for most of us, we've grown up thinking about hell as fire, and they're like, is it, is it that physically painful? But that's not necessarily the image of fire in the Bible. The image of fire in the Bible is like when you see people outside and they're burning their leaves. They're getting rid of it so it's no longer clogging their yard. And that's the image of fire that's largely there in Scripture saying people will be removed because of their sin. And they're, you know, it's like when people get kicked out of Disney World forever. They can't go back anymore. It's, that's kind of the image of fire. Is it, the image is they've been removed from the landscape. But there's another image that's in the Bible that's really telling, and that's the image of darkness. And sometimes when the Bible talks about hell, it talks about as as deep darkness or utter darkness. And that image is our experience of being removed from all of that. And I think that's what people are being removed from the beauty of God's word. I think that's what people are talking about when they talk about depression as being like hell. It's, it's this deep darkness. I feel like there's nothing that gives me life. There's no joy. I can't see things for what they are. I feel like I'm in the dark. There's a shroud over everything. And the reason I think this is so important is because that wasn't me. That was <laughs> We timed that perfect. There'll be sound effects all morning. It'll be good. Um, that probably was me actually. Um, so, but I've lost my chart. Tr- oh, why it's so important? Thank you. Is um, the reason I think this is so important is because this is a universal things. So many of us struggle with this. And there's several years ago, I think people actually thought if you struggle with depression, you might not really be a Christian. I don't think we're there anymore culturally, but I think there has been that in the past. And so I want to tell you about somebody from Christian history to show you that you can be a a vibrant Christian and struggle with depression. And that person is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in London, I think 19th century. And by some, he is called the Prince of Preachers. He had a lifelong struggle with depression. When he was 22, he was a young, uh, you know, young husband. They had twins, uh, he and his wife. He was, the, he was preaching in the pastor of a large church because even at age 22, he was a very, very gifted preacher. And so there, he was preaching at um, what's it, Surrey Gardens Music Hall and it's a large group gathering area. And two pranksters in the room yelled out, fire, fire. And of course, there's this huge mass of people in this auditorium and panic immediately set in. And so people are storming to get to the doors as fast as they can. And in the trample, in the press, seven people were killed and something like 28 people were injured in the midst of that. And Spurgeon never got over that. His mind was never the same after that. This is, there were, there, there were stretches of time for six months at a time where he was in such a depression and anxiety and fear about even getting into the pulpit that he just wouldn't preach. This is what his wife Susanna wrote. She said, my beloved's anguish, Charles's anguish, was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne. And we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. He was talking to his students at one time, because he had people who wanted to learn from him how to be a pastor. And this is what he talked this is what he said about that. He said, Knowing by my most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory for some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon, that younger men might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy, depression, and that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. Right? I think this psalm kind of serves like what Spurgeon was trying to do with his, his young protégés, is wanting, them to, wanting us to see that this kind of brokenness and the sadness is real, it's right here in scripture. It's, and I think because it's in the Bible, uh, it in some ways sanctifies our depression and our sense that we're rock bottom. He, he spot on nails exactly this. And the fact that this is in God's word shows us God knows what we're going through, the deep things, the dark things. And so it, it oddly sanctifies the struggle for us. But even though this is all the case, I think, and I, I love that the Psalm is in there just for that reason, I think that something else deeper is actually going on here. That doesn't remove our experience of reading Psalm 88, but actually deepens it a little bit. So what is this really about? Okay. The psalm start, the writer of the psalm starts with a statement of deep hope and trust. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So the person who's writing this has some sort of a deep faith and confidence in God. And here he even uses God's covenant name, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. We we translate it as the Lord. And it shows that he he understands and has an intimate relationship with God who has established a a permanent loving relationship with him. And uh, he knows that this God is a saving God because he starts off by saying, God of my salvation." And God always comes through. He's a God whose very nature is love, faithfulness, compassion, pity, power, benevolence, and giving aid. God is tender and compassionate and loyal to his people. In Psalm 116, um, you read about someone who says, I love Yahweh because when I cried out to him, he heard and he delivered me. He's a God who delivers. But as the psalm advances from this first verse and his concerns and his struggles are laid out, we find that he feels that this God who saves has rejected him. He cry, his cries go unanswered. Verse 14, why do you hide your face from me? So he has a sense that God has hidden his face. He's left completely on his own to suffer agony. So God turned away. Why did God hide his face? Because the speaker, he's actually expressing real faith, apparently, and as far as we read here, he didn't seem really even to have been guilty of any crime. In Psalm 32, we read this earlier, after David had committed sin with Bathsheba, he confessed his sin, and God met him immediately and forgave his sin. Right? When this person is writing... He doesn't mention any sin that he needs to be forgiven of. So it, as you read through, it's kind of, does it, what's the sin of this person? He doesn't really appear to have any, and yet the sentence of death is upon him. He's, he's counted as those who go down to the pit. Verse 7, he says, your wrath is heavy upon me. Why is this person experiencing this if there's not this sin that he can point to and say, I did that? And it might be because uh, this psalm is not about Haman the Ezraite, per se. It is a little, but it stretches beyond him. And it's not really just about our experience. It's about something deeper. So bear with me just a moment. We're going to step into the New Testament. Um, You can go there later if you want. Acts chapter 8, one of Jesus' followers named Philip is walking along a road, and the Lord prompts him to go walk next to this chariot where there's an Ethiopian... um, like councilman, he's he's a he's a representative of Ethiopia who's who's there. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch in a lot of um, writings, but Philip is listening as he's reading out loud from Isaiah, and he reads about a place where it talks about the suffering servant, and Philip and this man get into a conversation. The Ethiopian uh, man invites Philip up into the chariot. He reads another portion where it talks about a person being rejected by the Lord, and this and Philip says what is he talking about here? And he said, how can I know unless you you show me? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? The person that this person is writing, is he talking about himself or somebody else? And then it says that Philip, beginning with that very passage, explained the good news of the message of Jesus to him. And that became the way that we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament throughout is really about Jesus. Uh, when Peter is talking to the centurion, um, Cornelius, he goes to the Old Testament and explains the Old Testament as the story of Jesus. When in, in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is explaining the Old Testament, he explains it as the story of Jesus. And when we come to the Psalms, this is the same. Who is he talking about here in the Psalm? Is he talking about himself? Yeah, a little bit but what he's really doing is giving us insight into Jesus. There's, it's prophetic to some degree. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about the Psalms in general. He said they find their fulfillment in the mouth of Jesus. This is what he wrote. The Psalms that will not cross our lips as prayers, those that make us falter and offend, make us suspect that here someone else is praying, not we, that the one who is here affirming his innocence, who is calling for God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depth of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. It is he who is praying here, and not only here, but in the whole Psalter, all of the Psalms. The Psalter is the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word, meaning that they find their fulfillment pointing to him or being said by him. And so as we look at this, uh, there we go, As we look at this passage, the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, the Son of God, the star of the morning, the Alpha, the Omega, the author and champion of our faith, uh, light of the world, lion of the tribe of Judah, but also the suffering servant. And as we step into this passage in Psalm 88, he is, we're getting a picture of the suffering servant. Let me show you this, how it relates to some of the other Psalms. Psalm 88 begins and he says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And there is, an, there is a tie to that. There's, a, there's an echo of Psalm 22, which Jesus actually quoted on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this is what we read in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That's like what we just read, about, I cry out to you by day and night, by night and day. Uh, he says in uh, Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That's the suffering servant. And in Psalm 88, we read this, the Lord himself is the very one afflicted him. He says, you have put me, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, Surely he has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So what we're reading here is the moment when Christ's heart is breaking on the cross. It's the moment when he is separated from his father. When we talk about the cross, we typically talk about the uh, physical suffering of the cross. And that's a, that's a big deal. The crucifixion, the horrors of the crucifixion. People back then wouldn't even, didn't even want to think about what was taking place. But Jesus here is talking about the spiritual torment. At that moment, the day of his crucifixion, all the sin for all who believe was placed upon him. That hell that we talked about, that people who are going through depression feel, they feel that, but Jesus was experiencing the reality of it. All of our sins, all the sins of all the people who call on Jesus for all time were compressed into those few hours on the cross and they burned upon Jesus. He was removed. He was in utter darkness spiritually before the Father. He felt that in the depths of his soul uh, in a way that we don't. So I was thinking about how how do we fathom that? And I was thinking fireworks, we just had 4th of July. And uh, when, uh, some of you have seen the video, this is in 2012, San Diego, Uh, their, how long was it? Their 18 minute 4th of July fireworks show lasted only 15 seconds. Did any of you, have you ever seen this video? Google that, San Diego, 2012 um, fireworks show, Fiasco, something like that. fiasco is probably a pretty good word for them. So they had 18 minutes with music and flat, you know, the flashing, uh, everything choreographed. And because of a glitch in the system, all of the fireworks launched and fired within 15 seconds. And so what I thought that would be the most amazing thing to see, see ever, because it's just one pop after another in one little spot, in the cloud, the smoke, everything's getting brighter and condensing right at this particular moment. And as I was watching that, I was thinking about this particular passage in Jesus. The the blaze and the fireworks burned hot and fast. And after all the fireworks had burned up, there were no fireworks left. The fuel had been completely burned up. And that's what we're looking at here. As Jesus at that moment experienced the fullness of the blazing flash of the fire of God's judgment for all time, for all of those who call upon him. The eternity of hell that all who believe in Jesus would have experienced was experienced by him. It was compressed to that one moment in time. Now here's the thing about that is, Jesus knew what he was doing when he stepped into that. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12 verse two, which says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, right? He's looking at the cross, and there's a measure of joy that's coming for him, looking at the cross, and it says he was despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, The shame was the cross. The joy was our salvation and him stepping in on the throne and ruling over us and and repairing the world for us. Uh, So once Jesus has paid for our sins, there's no more sin for which he needs to atone for us. And for those who are in Christ, there's no more sin left for us for which we need to atone. Jesus has fully and completely paid for your sins if you trust in him. So, if you ask, uh, there was a guy named, uh, what's his name, Michael Scott Horton. Is that that's right? Well, is that his name? Michael Scott Horton. Um, he had this great quote. He was in his Sunday school class. I think he was like 12 years old. Sunday school teacher asked him when he was saved, meaning when was he converted. And his response was, I was saved 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Because that's when the penalty was paid. That's when Jesus paid for all of my sins. So that means today, if you're in Christ, there is no fuel for the fire. It's all burned up. It burned up 2,000 years ago when Jesus was dying on the cross for you. And that means utter and complete freedom for those of us who are in Christ. And no other religion has this. A God who would suffer physically and spiritually and emotionally on our behalf. Why do we, why do no other religions have that? Because they're all man made, and none of us could even fathom the idea of a God who would give him who become one of us, live for us, and die on our behalf. No other religion has anything like that. Um, he sympathizes with us,
1: and so a God
0: who suffers the deepest pain so that we never will. And so what we're reading and in, in, here in psalm 88 is getting this is the closest we're ever going to come to experiencing hell if you're in christ if you're in christ this is as close as you're 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 going to see this and experience this through the scripture but that's as close as you'll get how many of y'all seen the uh, that's me that, that, that is me i don't know what i'm doing differently so um yeah <laughs> nope not doing anything okay see if i could re- replicate that some of y'all um or maybe familiar with the movie that's, uh, I don't know if it's come out or it's getting ready to come out, Oppenheimer. Have you seen the previews for this? This is about the the testing of the first nuclear bomb explosion in the United States. And Christopher Nolan, who, uh, you know, he's done a lot of really big movies. He likes special effects and things in his movies. And this is what he's promised. He's promised viewers that they will be almost physically able to feel the detonation when they're watching his movie with the sound, modern sound systems, and the light on the screen, all all the stuff they did, you will basically be able to feel it even though you're not there and in no danger. That's Psalm 88, right? That is us experiencing vicariously the suffering of Jesus uh, by reading scripture and saying, that's what he went through. Now, I know for some of us, when we look at this, we would say, well, would God do this to me? Would God do what he did to the psalmist here. And we forget that this passage is not first and foremost about us. It's first and foremost about Jesus. That's why it's in the Bible, right? The Bible is not an encyclopedia of of mental health. He's talking about Jesus and he's wanting us to pull things out of this. So this isn't about what God will do with us. It's about what Jesus did for us so that God would never do this for us. When it really is really about the God who purposefully turned away from Jesus because he was determined never to turn away from us. The one speaking in this psalm is in the lowest pit, so that we will never have to be in the lowest pit. The suffering of Jesus secured the salvation of sinners who call upon his his name, period. So when we come into this, and into this passage, what he's saying is Jesus went to a cross for you. He experienced the darkness, the real darkness, so that even when you experience darkness in your life emotionally and spiritually. You can be sure that he hasn't gone anywhere; he's with you in the midst of that. So, what do we begin to do with this? How do we live this out? Well, um, one is this gives us honesty and permission to talk to talk freely to God about the things with which we're struggling. To have that kind of honest prayer, we feel like somehow that's sacrilegious to talk to God about how we're really feeling. And he's given us permission to talk about the struggles we have. Where's God? Where are you, God? Why have you turned your face away? So that's one. Number two, something that he's important, something important that he's doing here is he's contextualizing his emotions within the truth of what God has done. So he starts with, "O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. That's where he starts with the truth. And he's contextualizing uh, what he's experiencing within the framework of the truth of who God is and what I know about God. So, we are in a culture that some people have referred to as the psychological age. And some people have referred to us as psychological people, which means, in, in a way that uh, other generations have not done, our world right now defines ourselves by our inner psychology. In yesteryear, people defined themselves by their jobs. In yesteryear, people defined themselves by uh, their families. In yesteryear, people define themselves by something outside of themselves. But today, we define ourselves typically by our emotions and our feelings, by our desires, by things that are, we, we go deep and we look for something inside of us, we say, that's the reality of who I am, that's my truth. But what he's doing here is something important because he's anchoring that inward journey in a truth outside of himself, which is the truth about who God is. Because if you let your emotions form the context for your entire life, it will shine its rays of shadow across the world world around you. If you think that you're this way, that God has abandoned me, that uh, that I am these things, I'm I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed, as I sit in the darkness this is the way the world is, instead of this is what I'm struggling with right now, then you're going to be wandering into a deeper and darker place. So if you, uh, if you do this, uh, you will think my emotions aren't dark. The world is dark. I don't simply feel alone. I am alone. You paint your own picture of the world, of the world is, and you accept your own vision of reality so what he's calling us to do in this passage and I've had to do this for me I'm having to speak from experience on this because I admitted earlier that I have a tendency towards depression in my own life and I have I have an anchoring verse for me when I'm struggling it's from Psalm 73 you hold me by my right hand you guide me with your counsel afterwards you will take me into your glory That anchors me. That's the truth. What's your truth that you tell yourself when you start to go to the dark place? He's calling us to do this, um, to anchor ourselves in the truth. God is with me, though I don't feel his presence because of that day so long ago when God truly left Jesus so that he would never leave me. Jesus went through this darkness alone for me so that when I go through the darkness or you go through the darkness you can be sure that he's going to go through the darkness with you. Real story. I knew a woman years ago. Her, she, was a, she was the wife of a very well-known uh, football coach. Don't try to figure that out, who that is. Like, I wonder who Stephen knew. That, don't try to figure that out. I did ask her permission to use this years ago, this story. But uh, being a football coach's wife, uh, they lived in a fishbowl. Right. There's 24 hour news, ESPN, all these things. They want to do spotlight pieces on coaches, families, everything else. And so she lived in a fishbowl and uh, she's over a period of time developed schizophrenia. I don't know how much of that was chemical, how much of that was situ- situational. She developed something that was really dark and she struggled with knowing what was true. And she put some, there was at least one episode where she got in her car, drove away from the house, went to a, a motel, and was convinced that she was getting radio signals from the TV. Getting messages from God through the TV. And uh, all of this led to deep depression in her life. She was uh, on depression meds, all of these things. And as, a, as, a, as a, you talked to her about that situation, she would say that she would not trade that experience for anything. Because of the intimacy that she enjoyed With Christ in the midst of it. She said, as she was sitting there in her own mental illness, the one anchor that she had was that Jesus loves me and he promised never to leave me. I'm sitting in the darkness and he's sitting here with me. He hasn't gone anywhere. That's the anchor. He's with me, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's going to be with me no matter what, no matter how broken I get, no matter matter how broken my life gets, Jesus will be there with me in the midst of it. Listen to this. This is again from Charles Spurgeon. My dear friend, when grief presses you to the dust, worship there. And he went on to say: In the night of sorrow, believers are like nightingales, and they sing in the darkness. There is no real night to a man of a nightingale spirit. I will sing because Jesus is with me. Lifting our eyes to the heavens in the midst of our darkness is an incredible act of deep faith and courage to say I will cling to Jesus. Paul talks continually in his writings about the fight of faith. I think it was Flannery O'Connor who wrote and said, for some of us, faith in our lives is a continual fight. We fight one foot in front of the other one for the whole of our lives. So what, com- what good comes of this for people? Well, one is you learn to pray, and as you're looking at this passage, it's, it's pretty expressive and vivid. It's pretty eloquent and poetic for such a dark poem, for such a dark psalm. Uh, is it because the person was so poetic? There might have been a little bit to it, but for many of us, darkness is a school in which we learn to pray, because we we, uh, we learn what our weakness truly is, the levels of it, and we instinctively learn to cry out to God because I can't fix this and I have to learn to pray. So we move past the memorized prayers of our childhood, the formalized prayers of, of public occasions, and the ritual prayers before our mealtimes. And when you go through something difficult, you see the world for what it is broken, And you long for your heavenly home so for the first time your prayers become filled with a hope for heaven Um, we cling to the promises of the future we pray prayers of repentance we offer prayers of thanks and we constantly talk to our god and here's another part another thing we learn not just to pray for ourselves we learn to pray for others and to vocalize prayers for others praying for others what they may not know to pray for themselves it enables us To know what it's like to be other people. And though they can't say, I'm struggling with this. You know what they're struggling with because you've been through it. And I don't know how many times I've been praying with somebody and they say, thank you for praying for that. How did you know to pray for that? It's like, because I'm the same. I'm broken and I need this savior too. Spurgeon again. He who has been in the dark dungeon knows the way to bread and water. If you have passed through depression and the Lord has appeared to your comfort, lay yourself out to help others who are where you used to be. God has redeemed us through Jesus' darkness. So God can make your darkness redemptive in the light. The lives of other people. My dear friend, when grief presses you to dust, worship there. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray right now that what we just talked about would have the desired effect. That people who are here who are broken and just needed somebody to acknowledge that they too were broken in that same way, they would be encouraged. But for all of us, Lord, my real prayer is that we would see that Jesus... Jesus knows what it's like to be in the darkness, and he sits with us. I pray that you would enable us to uh, be those who sit with others in their darkness without being afraid of it, but just sitting by just as Christ does. Would you help us to live this out in our lives? Would you give comfort to those who are still in the midst of struggles? Would you bless us? Would you be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.